In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today, on Good Friday, the Church stands in awe with Mary, with St. John, with the women who are standing by the cross of Jesus as God eclipses his divinity for a time in order to save us, in order to show us how much he loves us. Our Lord had said yesterday at the Last Supper, there is no greater love than this than for a man to give his life for his friends. And that is precisely what he is doing hanging from the cross. He gives to the last drop, not being able to give anything else. And the world responds with with awe, we could say, with awe. Even nature responds by a darkening over the whole land. St. Luke puts it this way, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened and the curtain of the temple was torn in the middle. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Father, into thy hands I commend thy spirit. And having said this, he expired. There was darkness over the whole land for three hours. Our Lord had previously said, when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, as against the robber have you come out with swords and clubs. When I was daily with you in the temple, you did not stretch forth your hands against me. But, he adds, this is your hour, the power of darkness. More than a darkening of the sun, a physical darkening of the sun, there is a darkening of conscience. Especially the conscience of those people that turned Jesus in. Judas, the betrayer's conscience. And the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the Romans, the centurions. The people who have shown great cruelty even after Pilate had deemed our Lord innocent several times, as he says, that he was 
that he was not guilty of what they were accusing him. And yet, out of weakness, some out of weakness, like Pilate, some out of spite or malice, like the chief priests and the Pharisees, they hand Jesus over to be killed. This is Good Friday. This is the hour of darkness. St. John would put it simply, it was then night when the betrayer left the Last Supper. It was then night. It was the hour. The hour had come for Jesus to be glorified, for Jesus to go back to the Father, for him to accomplish his mission, and for sin to be unveiled as what it is. And that's what the crucifix shows us. Shows us. Just the utter ugliness of sin and at the same time the extraordinary humility and mercy of Jesus who forgives even that, even that injustice. This is Good Friday. If Nietzsche could be quoted, it is today. God is dead and we have killed him. These words come true every Good Friday. And actually, every time a sin is consented to, God dies. And he apparently fails. But as Pope Benedict said one time to Swiss bishops early on in his papacy, God at first always fails. But he fails apparently only in order to elicit a more creative yes out of man. God does not fail. He does not fail, ultimately. Evil never has the last word. I'm paraphrasing his extraordinary speech by that title, God Does Not Fail. Because he loves, and love is the only thing that gives meaning to this utter injustice. Evil, as St. Maria put it, has its hour, but God his eternity. I don't know if you've noticed in, the, in these words that we have just read of the gospel that describe the phenomenon of darkness at Calvary from the sixth hour from 12 o'clock to the ninth hour to 3 o'clock. They are the hottest part of the day. They are the brightest part of the day. And a solar eclipse would not make sense at that time, especially because Passover occurs after a full moon. And therefore, 
the moon is on the other side. It can't eclipse it. There is no, it's not the moon that is eclipsing the, the sun. And if it were to eclipse the sun, it would only be for 15 minutes if it were to be a natural solar eclipse. This darkness is not natural. It is, it could be a cloud, but it, the sun was darkened, it says. There is an unnatural, uncanny darkening. It really is more akin to the plague of darkness, the ninth plague, if you recall, in Exodus, when Moses stretches his hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. And Exodus says, a darkness to be felt. A darkness to be felt. This is the same type of darkness. It's a deeply felt darkness. The darkness of sin. And Exodus continues, So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. A clear foreshadowing of these three days that Jesus would be in the tomb, not three full days, but the bare minimum to fulfill the prophecy. They did not see one another, nor did any rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light where they dwelt. Interesting. The sons of Israel, the children of Israel had light wherever they were. Whereas everybody else was in a thick darkness that could be felt. What does this mean for us? This thick darkness is the darkness of suffering, of pain, of, of the cross. It is the darkness of sin. The darkness of ignorance of how we are to attain eternal life. It is the darkness of sadness and despair, ultimately. It is the darkness that does not allow us to walk, but, and therefore we resort to sitting to sitting in darkness like the land of Zebulon and land of Nephtali. They were sitting in darkness, says St. Matthew, quoting the prophet Isaiah. They were sitting in darkness and then they saw a great light, Jesus coming to them. But here we have the, the light of God eclipsed for a time the divinity, the splendor on Mount Tabor that was shining on the faces of Peter, James, and John, of Moses and Elijah, is now gone, is now hidden from their eyes. And they, because, or at least Peter and James and the rest of the apostles except St. John, they run away because they somehow 
live at that time in 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 the scandal of suffering they don't understand they're despairing they give in to sadness and they run away and they're in hiding they don't know what to do they're sitting in darkness Saint Maria warns us to beware of calvaries that are not Christ's because it is those type of calvaries that lead to despair it is a suffering that is not good and sometimes we place ourselves even voluntarily in those type of situations that whereby we suffer a lot but to no avail Mark Twain said I have a suffer- I have suffered a thousand crosses two of which actually came true <laughs> it's true he suffered a thousand crosses two of which came true meaning the rest were his imagination our imagination is a faculty that we have to project that which is not present yet or that which can never be present it's the, the, the those future contingents you know, that may never happen that could happen and they somehow or our imagination somehow anticipates the suffering that we could undergo. And that makes us suffer all the more. Animals don't suffer as much as we do because they have a more limited capacity to anticipate and to bring forth, to look, you know, to look ahead and make present the sufferings that they may undergo just think of students uh, you know with an exam they, they suffer through the exam the whole quarter or the whole semester and then they take the exam and they forget about it <laughs> it's gone so but they've been suffering and they, they they're just you know they're unbearable at times the student that is the exams are just normal and students have to learn not to make a mountain out of a molehill. And they have to learn to temper that. They have to learn to, to not crucify themselves in calories that are not Christ. Well, this is a banal example, but, but past woes, we bring them forward to the present with our memory. Past ills, past hurts, past injury past insult or possible insult and we 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 get into into situations that weaken us they hypnotize us and they do us no good because they don't exist Christ is not there. Christ is not in that kind of suffering. There's only darkness. But the children of Israel, they had light. 
who are these people that the book of Exodus talks about? Well, certainly they are the chosen people. But who are these people with, in regard to our Lord's cross? Who has light? Who are those people who know how to suffer and who know how to suffer with Christ, console Christ? Who are those people who see meaning and love and freedom behind the cross so that they don't see just pain, but they see sacrifice, which is really suffering for someone? These people are Our Lady, St. John. Simon of Cyrene, Nicodemus, St. Joseph of Arimathea, Mary Magdalene, and the other women who were there accompanying our Lord, the good thief as well, and others perhaps, the centurion who converted, long genius. These are the people who have transformed suffering and have given it meaning. They carry a cross of hope, not of damnation. For them, to die with Jesus is an act of freedom, as is Jesus' passion, an act of freedom. He's in total control. He doesn't take the wine mixed with gall, as St. Maria points out in his way of the cross, as an archotic to lessen in some way the pain of the crucifixion, he spits it out because he wants to suffer generously for the others, for his friends. Suffering for him is an act of freedom. Dying for him is an act of freedom. No one can take away my life, he says in, in the parable of the good shepherd. No one takes my life. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. These words are clear. No one takes Jesus' life, even if he is chained. He wills to be chained by those people who chained him. He wills to be chained or fixed to the cross. He gives them permission. He is free. He can come down from the cross at any time. But he doesn't. He doesn't. St. Thomas Aquinas actually points this out. He says, when Jesus speaks of the hour, of you know, that his hour had come, he says, he was not speaking here of the hour in which he would be forced to die, but rather of the hour in which he thought it fitting to be killed. My time has not yet come, as he said before. My hour has not yet come. Jesus knew that his time, his hour, had come to leave this world for the Father. It is that, that optimal time, that, that chosen time by the Father. And, and Jesus sees this as a gift from the Father. It is time 
to go back to the Father. It is time for me to suffer and, and out of love, redeem all of mankind. It really is a beautiful expression of love. After original sin, the only way to love is actually through suffering. Otherwise, love becomes simply self-seeking, as, as Pope Benedict points out in Spes Salvi. You can't love without suffering after original sin. And that's, that's, uh, that's just the order of things. The reality is that you and I cannot not suffer in this world. That's just the way things are. We are always going to suffer, even if we arrange things in such a way that we get drugged up when we're going to die. We, you know, the morphine and all the palliative care only goes so far. We will always suffer. We will always suffer. And psychological suffering as well, you know, the loneliness, the, the, the contradiction, the lack of understanding of people, the insult, the, all these things, you know, they may not hurt us physically, but they hurt us psychologically. And we will, we will, we cannot avoid this. It's just the way, the way we are, the way things are, the way, the way the world is after sin. And what are we going to do about it? Since we cannot avoid suffering, the only thing that makes sense is not to try to run away from it, because that's impossible, but the only thing that makes sense is to try to use it for our good and for the good of others. That's the only logical thing to do with suffering. And that's what Jesus teaches us to do. He teaches us to offer it up and co-redeem with him. Look, and, and to freely love it. To freely love it as an, as an act of self-sacrifice for others. That is what, um, what Viktor Frankl actually discovers in, in the concentration camp. Let me re read you this passage, which is quite extraordinary, of how he, in his suffering, he found meaning. And he was able to continue going forward. Not because he had much to eat or because the conditions changed, but because he discovered that he was loved in his suffering. He says, while marching with somebody else, it, you know, for long periods of time. Somebody says to him, if our wives could see us now, I do hope they are better off in their camps and don't know what is happening to us. There's a fellow prisoner tells Victor Frankl this. And Victor Frankl comments in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which I highly recommend you read. That brought thoughts of my own wife to mind. And as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said, but we both knew each of us was thinking of his wife. Occasionally, I looked at the sky where the stars were fading, and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind 
a dark bank of clouds. But my mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it with an uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. Real or not, her look was then more luminous than the sun, which was beginning to rise. This is the light of the sons of Israel. In fact, Viktor Frankl is a son of Israel, being a Jew himself. This is the light that those children of Israel had, and this is what the what we ought to have as the light that enlightens the darkest hours when we are suffering, uniting it to the cross of Jesus. He continues, A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life I saw the truth, as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in the world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. In a position of utter desolation, when man cannot express himself in positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, an honorable way, in such a position man can, through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, achieve fulfillment. For the first time in my life I was able to understand the meaning of the words, the angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of an infinite glory. This is extraordinary. It really is. And we have the example of Jesus in whose footsteps, St. Peter encourages us, we can follow. Because he had the contemplation of God the Father all the time, and he knew that he was being loved. And that's why he was able to do this. In, in Gethsemane, when he was tempted to run away from the cross, to, you know, to, to say no to the cup that the Father had in store for him, he, he yelled out, Abba, Father. He reinforced his divine filiation. He contemplated the Father in order to be able to overcome all those suffering. In fact, only insofar as he was totally focused on that was he able in his humanity to persevere to the end because that gave him meaning. We see this actually in, in, in many circumstances in life when somebody is dying of an illness, say of cancer, but they haven't seen their kids get married. Somehow they will, they will live until, you know, that child gets married, of course, within reasonable time and everything, but they will make the effort and the body will, will, will obey, will obey that desire, that desire of hope, which gives them hope. Because they are transfixed on the fact that they have to see this goal, whatever it is in their life, occur, fulfilled. And they make it, they, they, their body, you know, kind of heals naturally 
for a time at least, in order to be able to to show this love. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. In fact, in St. John's Gospel, we see how St. John emphasizes the awareness of Jesus going to the cross. He says several times that Jesus knew, knowing that the hour had come to go back to the Father, knowing that he had to fulfill Scripture, knowing that he had to do this and that, knowing that the Father had given everything to him in his hands, and all these phrases about Jesus' knowledge and his awareness, knowing that, you know, he likes to use that expression all the time, knowing that, because he wants us to see that Jesus is contemplating and he, his suffering has meaning, ultimate meaning, in the love of the Father, in obeying the Father, in doing his Father's will. It doesn't matter. My will is to do the, the, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, he said to the apostles when they brought him food and he didn't want to eat because he was satisfied with having accomplished his father's will. Extraordinary example of freedom in this way. Embracing the cross out of love. And that's what you and I are called to do. And today, Good Friday, is, is a day that should make us reflect on how we embrace our cross. And let's face it, in the spirit of St. Jose Maria, you and I have to embrace an ordinary cross. It's not gonna, we're not going to be crucified with nails, but yes, with pinpricks. We're going to have to offer those small things, the person who annoys us, the weather that, that is bad, the, the traffic jam, the, the guy who cuts us off, the colleague at work who is difficult, who wants, you know, to step over us and we are patient with him or her. The, you know, this is, this is our ordinary cross. This is what we have to offer. There's nothing else. And if we don't find Jesus here, we may run the risk of going about in, an, in, 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 in a lifetime of darkness. This is our light. This is what gives us light. And it's these these opportunities that we have to to really turn the torch on for others as well. Because people will see us happy. That's what St. Paul did. He said, Far be it from me, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. This is what, these are our words as well. We make these words our own today. We want to suffer as much as we can out of love for God because any suffering we undertake united to Jesus in the state of grace, focusing on our love, not the, the cross of our imagination, but real love is co-redemptive. This is what Mary, Mary's lesson is. She was there at the foot of the cross suffering in a co-redemptive way because of her 
you and I are here. And we are called to give freely what we have freely received. We have freely been given this example. Let us embrace it ourselves and put it into practice as well. Without saying much, just being there is enough. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.